Welcome to Men in Mind with me, Tom Bryant. My guest today is one quartet of the best-selling British pop band The Vamps. James McVeigh has enjoyed enormous success over the last decade, with two number one albums under his belt, several sellout world tours, and even a stint on ITV show I'm a Celebrity in 2018. But behind the scenes, James has been very honest about his struggles with body dysmorphia, eating disorders, as well as admitting to having liposuction aged just 19 years old. I caught up with him last week as he releases his first solo EP and also gears up for a show in support of Mind at London's Hoxton Hall next month. Fair play to him, he was really upfront and spoke really eloquently about his mental health, particularly some dark times at the end of last year, which he's never talked about before. I can't thank him enough and I think what he has to say can genuinely help a lot of people. But just to warn you that our conversation does explore his experiences with body dysmorphia and touches on some topics that some of us may find distressing, including issues relating to eating problems, body image, as well as drug and alcohol use. So listen to James's interview of care and for any support, go to mind.org.uk. I hope you enjoy James, welcome to Men in Mind. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, we're currently sat here in the in the Mind HQ overlooking the lovely Olympic Park. It's a very shiny building. Obviously, you've got quite a close affinity with the, with the charity, haven't you? You're doing your show yep. next month in support of them. Yeah, yeah. My first solo show, uh, November the 10th with Mind. And mental health has been integral to the kind of formation of my EP. So when they approached me, I was like, this is fate. It's the perfect kind of uh, partnership. So I'm really excited for it. Yeah. First, first solo gig. Well, how's yeah. that? How does that feel? I mean, the last solo gig I did was age 14, 15, back in back in Dorset. So I'm terrified. Uh, so much so that I've put like a band together a- around me, and there's like five other people on stage, so I can try and blend in a little bit. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's always like a security blanket sometimes. Yeah. It is. the voice around you it is it is uh yeah and there's nowhere to hide like sometimes if you know if i if i need to birth or something on stage i'll just might find brad singing but with me uh, the, uh, this show with mine i'm just going to be right there so yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge though and i think one thing that i've learned over the past few years is it's really important to step outside of my comfort zone to, to push myself into areas that scare me a little bit in order to kind of learn and, and evolve. So this show is well, the epitome of that process. Um, and we've covered loads of themes in this in the series so far, you know, with um, anxiety, with Greg Wallace, um, you know, discovering the joys of therapy in your 60s with, with Simon Cowell. But I think your story is, is um, quite unique in many respects. And I think it generates so many talking points because um, you're someone who's been very honest about suffering from body dysmorphia. Um, can you sort of explain, so in layman terms, to our listeners what that is? So I think it's important to, to clarify. I've not been like medically diagnosed with it, but I I relate to a well to all of it, to be honest. Um, uh, my research and what people have said to me. Um, I see body dysmorphia personally as well. One, my life. I mean, I'm much better now, but in the in the depths of it, my life revolved around food. Um, the continuous self-evaluation of whether I'm happy with 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 my with my body, and I think vanity is like the go-to thing. But I actually think for me it wasn't from a point of vanity. I think it stemmed from a a yearning to be in control of 
aspects of my life in an environment that was typically all over the place, you know, touring and, and whatever, where you struggle to actually grasp onto any control. <laughs> my sense of uh, trying to find control came in food and exercise. Um, so it was the continuous notion of feeling uh, unfulfilled with with a kind of the amount of exercise I'm doing or the just the continuous worry that I wouldn't be able to get to a gym, wouldn't be able to eat healthy foods. And that just sort of led to this sort of spiral of unfulfillment. And um, and it was funny because, you know, I'd, I'd set myself goals where I'd get there and then I'd be like, oh, my legs are really skinny. And it would just be a constant like regressive cycle where I just became more and more unhealthy physically, but also more importantly, probably mentally. Um, and yeah, it kind of controlled my life for, for quite a long time. Can you pinpoint when these feelings started? Was it growing up in, in Dorset? So I think, again, it's, it's important to say, and I was stressed, like I really, really supported parents. So I think every time I talk about this, it's quite upsetting for them because, can imagine. because you know, I, I wouldn't want to convey like a sense of like I was neglected or they, they weren't there to help me or didn't support me. They did. I grew up in quite a sports-based environment, not at my home, but like school, it was like a sports college. Then I ironically went, became a music college kind of after I left, but it was a sports college. At the time I was doing music, so I, I typically didn't really fit in naturally. I was more interested in riding my BMX and writing songs. So I didn't really fit into a certain social group. Um, and I think what I did is it was the time when there was these like American fashion brands that came over, sort of like Californian living style brands came over and like took over the whole of the UK. And I thought maybe adhering to that lifestyle of, um, I guess like high intensity workouts and like wearing certain clothes and looking certain way would perhaps, I think, I think in hindsight, I think I thought if I followed that, lifestyle then i would maybe find a bit more of a place in my social hierarchy at school um and yeah i sort of have i have like quite a quite a vivid memory of having this like bag from one of these shops in my bedroom that was just there for ages so like the first thing i would see and the last thing i would see before going to sleep was like this really toned man um and i think it kind of instilled this kind of weird addiction within me to be like I want to look like that. And the, the scary thing I, I think about uh, the sort of experience I had is I thought that I was living like healthily and I I kind of lulled myself into believing that it was this like strive to be, yeah, like like an athletic build and, uh, and I would be like the pinnacle of health. And, and the reality is like, I was really unhealthy. Um, my, my skin was really bad. I was in like foul moods all the time. So I just find it sort of like ironic that actually I was really unhealthy when I thought I was being healthy. And I think that kind of plays into that mental state of denial, um, which, which I had for quite a long time. You mentioned this this bag in your in your bedroom. Yeah. Um, how else were you sort of consuming the news? Was it on your social media feed? How, how, how was this messaging getting to you? What's funny is it was kind of just before social media. Um, you know, it, it was before it was before TikTok, before Instagram. Um, I think it was just I would look at people at school and people on TV that were like 
stereotypically attractive or whatever um and thought that i should try and replicate that to an extent um and yeah and 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 that's kind of kind of where i found myself and i think at the age of like 15 16 when you're quite impressionable anyway it's quite easy to kind of go go into certain things and i think like my biggest regret was the amount of like whey protein for example i would like consume and and I think the damage that I did to my like body back then by taking those things, like I struggle quite a lot now with with dairy dairy products. And I think, I mean, I don't know, but I I think that what I did then really impacted my body now. Um, what did your day look like? My day looked like probably wait. Well, it depends if I was on tour, if I was just at home. But like maybe just before before the vamps went went crazy it would be wake up okay can i get to the gym within the next like hour and a half or whatever or at any point today if the answer is yes great carry on and then i'd do like i'd have my protein powder with porridge oats and water because it's funny i thought the, the irony with this as well like i thought that adding milk to porridge would would make me like fat but then like whey protein is is like from milk right so <laughs> Uh, so that was like the warped kind of uh, sense of, um, of rationality with that extreme eating. And then if I, if I woke and, it, and throughout that, it would still be a, a constant thing of like, just thinking about choices with food, thinking about if, if I had to eat, like, I have like memories of filming with the vamps in the early days where we'd be in America doing like a Chicago deep dish, like challenge for a YouTube channel. And like, I'd eat it and then I'd hate the fact I'd eaten it. And I was um, and, and then I think it started shifting a little bit more when we were touring and I was like consciously determining where we could or couldn't eat. Like we had, a, we had like a big touring party, maybe like 15, 16 people. And I'd be like, and it's before I was vegetarian. So all I would eat was chicken, like genuinely all I would eat is chicken, not like seasoned chicken, just plain chicken and then broccoli or whatever. So if we'd be in the middle of nowhere in America and we go to a restaurant and all I had was like, I don't know, like pizza, I'd be like, we can't eat here. And and then if and if that was paired with not being able to go to the gym, I was just not a very nice person really. And it took me a long time to accept that I'd become quite controlling in, in that way. Um, and, and again, the, the irony with it was, is I was like, if I couldn't eat the certain foods that I wanted to, I'd buy loads of like protein bars they're like packed with artificial sugar and and you know chocolate and stuff especially in america so like it just shows i didn't really have like a rational approach to any of these things it was just just confusing time where i think i was trying to claw back a sense of control in my life but at the expense of my relationships with people around me and my relationship with myself i think i think it's very interesting when you talk about relationships obviously you mentioned about your parents Mm. earlier yeah when did you hide a lot of that from them to begin with I, th- I think i did i it's i think what it was is again like i i have memories of me making these like potions of protein in, in the kitchen and like i was hellbent convinced that it was like for health so i think i tried my best to say i, I take like loads of like amino acid tablets or random things and i know my mum would be like what's that for and i'd be like oh well it helps me build muscle mass or it's really you know this full of vitamins or whatever so I think I tried my best to like manipulate that relationship into being something positive as opposed to negative. Um, and they must have really struggled with it. Uh, 
because they they obviously noticed me getting much thinner and much more uh, obsessed and addicted to to exercise and eating certain things and you know like so they had this like this contrasting thing of either I was like not eating anything or I was eating to excess and it was just really bizarre like that with you know being 18 not like drinking any alcohol at all but not because I I like I wanted to drink alcohol but I was like no, no I've got to cut all that stuff out and you know I think moderation is the key with everything but for me I was so like black or white with these things that it must have been difficult for my parents to to deal with yeah you, you mentioned earlier about it's not it wasn't a question of vanity mm. um so when you looked in the mirror what did you what did you think when you saw yourself in the mirror I didn't look at myself ever and I'm like oh you're ugly or like oh you're really fat I just think I constantly saw myself as like a project where it would be like okay, you can like, you need to be like healthier. So like get a little bit more muscly. It was never like idolizing over myself and looking at myself being like, oh, you look really good. Like I never, I never felt that actually. And I think there may be like a, an element of like self-destruction in there a little bit, maybe pushing my body to certain limits. And I don't really know like the crux of why that, why that was. I mean, I presume it was like the, the need to feel a sense of control, like I said, but I don't know. I just think it's quite easy for like a 15, 16 year old to get swept up in this like culture of athleticism and wanting to be like the popular guy, wanting to recreate that lifestyle, that SoCal thing. Like, and before I realized it, it just sort of turned from something I thought was like a healthy thing to actually like quite a negative, dangerous path. What did your bandmates say? Particularly when you say, yeah, we can't eat, we can't eat here. Yeah. There's such a structure around your eating. Did it sort of impinge upon upon sort of the tour, touring and sort of daily life? I think so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, to be fair to them, they they were like so good with with like managing the situation. Um, I think because I already had these things when we met, you know, so this the, these tendencies start at probably age fifteen, and I met Brad when I was eighteen. I was always known as like the like the athletic one out of the group. Like we, people just in the band knew that I'd be like going to the gym or whatever. So I don't think they realised. I think the thing with with this, which I've noticed, is it was like increment, like increase. It wasn't just like one day I woke up and I was like, I'm going to be really into the gym. It was like a very very gradual well, regression, really. Um, and I think you know they they were very sympathetic to it. I don't think they. I think now looking back, we realised that that I was like in a bit of a weird place with it. But back then, you know, I'm the oldest in the band. So Connor was like 15, um, Brad was 17, Tristan was my age, but we were like young guys, like touring the world. And I think it's, it was quite easy for us to just like get swept up in the craziness. And, and they probably didn't realize how severe it was, but I think looking back now, we, we acknowledge that it was a, uh, yeah, quite, quite difficult, but they're very diplomatic boys. So that we never had arguments about it, but I think if it was me, going back there to that moment as like third person i think i'd be really annoyed with me because i wasn't i wasn't a good person to be around most of the time we spoke to um matt willis for the podcast yeah um a few episodes ago he's, he's in many respects it's quite a similar story to yours mm. um he was sort of swept up in fame and touring as a as a, as a young man mm. um and he spoke about how there wasn't really any sort of, sort of mental health provision there wasn't there weren't necessarily conversations that busted necessarily had at the time um, you were obviously a little bit later than him in terms of in terms of your in terms of your music career. Mm. Um, were there conversations about mental health 
happening? I think it was, again, I think 10 years ago was a different time. Like, you know, it's brilliant how much we're speaking about mental health now and even like this this podcast. Like, this pro- I couldn't imagine this happening when I was 16, 17. But I think what was great with the vamps is we would always communicate how we felt. So I think I think that the biggest thing is we would always talk about things. And I really did feel like I could confide in people. But the important thing for me is I didn't know I had an issue, right? I think if I knew I was dealing with with this with this thing, this this difficulty with food, I would would have spoken to them. But I got swept into this this mindset of like I'm being really healthy. There's nothing actually to talk about. I'm I'm fine, kind of thing. So mental health now is discussed a lot within within the vamps um and i think you know sort of turning 30 10 years with the band you get like a whole new sense of perspective um and appreciation but we've always yeah they've always been there for me but again it's it's the the fact i didn't realize that i needed to speak to them you know i've spoken to them about loads of things but never needed to well i never felt i needed to about that one of the things you've, you've talked about is having um liposuction at sort of 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And I think people listening to this will be quite shocked by that. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your reasons for, for going down that path? I mean, again, it was really upsetting for my parents. Um, and I kind of... What was the conversation like with them? Can you remember? I think it was something like, I've got this like breast tissue that no amount of exercise can get rid of. And to, to be fair, to, to be fair to me in a, in a weird way, it was like genuinely affecting me and upsetting me and you know like i don't think there'd been like many people that had like said anything about it but you know i I was i was very very thin everywhere else and just just not there um and i think yeah again with with the food and and the fitness i'd like convinced myself into believing that uh that i was living this really healthy healthy lifestyle mentally and physically and i think i said to my parents i was like for my like mental well-being the irony of this but like my 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 mental happiness and well-being like i really feel like i need to do this and they were like really really obviously not wanting me to do it but you know i was yeah 19 or whatever so the reality is i i I was sort of hell-bent on doing that so whether you know if they hadn't like i had big holes in my ears and my nose pierced when i was 14 like i if i wanted to do something then i I would have done it and my parents hate my tattoos and here i am but so I was probably going to end up doing it anyway. And I think they realized like he either does that on his own or we help the best we can to, to you know, do it in the safest possible way. Um, so it was really difficult for them, I think. Um, and yeah, and I, it's sort of like a testament to their, to their parenting, how they stood by me and supported me because like, I think I, I don't know how I'd deal with that if my kids sort of came to me wanting you know, like, well, cosmetic surgery, really, at, at that age. I think, you know, I, I convinced myself that it, you know, because there is a technical term for, for excessive breast tissue, like in men. So, like, it is a medical thing. And I think as soon as I found that, I was like, oh, this is a medical thing. I've got this, I've got this condition. Where well, the reality is I probably should have looked inwards and been like, okay, why am I feeling the, the like, desire to do this? Um, and there was no real, like, my parents obviously loads, but there was no real conversation with like the surgeons or anything of being like, maybe he should, you know, like speak to some other, maybe he should have some like therapy or something. That's know. really interesting, isn't it? Ethically, yeah. you have to sort of look at the role of the of, yeah. of the cosmetic surgeons in that instance. Yeah, I mean, I, they're, they're like lovely people, great. But like, I just, I'd like to think that if I was a parent and my like 19 year old 
was going for surgery for something, there would at least be a con. I, I, maybe there was, and I've forgotten, but I don't really ever remember being like, "Oh, do you, do you think you need? Do you actually think you need this?" Or you know, it was pretty much like, "Okay, let's do this, and and it's fine," kind of thing. Would you, looking back on it, would do you think it was the right thing to do at the time? It's really hard because, like, I still deal with with this mindset from time to time. Like most days, I'll have like occasional things, and like <laughs> I would still, I know that I would still want that procedure, even though I know it was like not needed. I feel like I still would have wanted it, um, which which is interesting. I think in many ways, like I'm frustrated with myself that I felt like I had to do it, but I. I kind of still feel I would do it just because this kind of, I mean, we keep saying body dysmorphia or whatever. I don't, again, don't know if that's technically what it is, but it's like a daily occurrence to me where like, I can't help but have these like thoughts. It's just about now being able to view it from a sort of third person perspective, almost being like, okay, that's a negative thought. Let's like move through that. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know if I, if I'd have it, have it again. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about how you didn't realize you had a problem. I mean, um, when did you realize? I think, uh, I think getting older like helped anyway, but really meeting my wife was quite a big thing because I couldn't live like selfishly anymore. You know, I, I was very lucky with the start of the vamps where things were going really well and I was effectively living kind of in like hotels around the world and could do what I want, eat what what I want and whatever. And then all of a sudden I met my wife and it was like, okay, um, we need to like go out for dinner and stuff. And I was like, well, how am I gonna get boiled chicken at, at like a, I don't know, a hackersan? <laughs> like, you just don't really do that, right? I was really trying to impress her as well. So I wanted to take her to these nice places and, and do stuff. And I think it just sort of, it was almost like this ultimatum that wasn't really like, you know, she didn't give me an ultimatum. It was just an obvious ultimatum. Either I need to like sort this stuff out or it's not, I'm not going to be able to build a relationship with this person. And I think with the vamps, I'd like, yeah, trick myself into thinking it was just this equilibrium where I could do what I want and they'd be fine. But when you're introducing someone brand new into the scenario, when I was like so far down this path, it just, it just wasn't going to work. It would be quite abrasive. Um, it coincided actually with the, t the time that I had my liposuction and up until about three years ago, which is crazy. I can't believe she didn't think this. So like when we met, I had to wear this like really tight thing for like three weeks or whatever after the surgery. She thought I'd had breast enlargement until until a couple of years ago. I was like, what do you mean? Like, it's just funny. So, so for her, it must have been very weird meeting me and within like a few months realized that I'd had this like procedure. So I think she knew that there was like issues. But it's taken a long time to, to get through it. And she, she's brilliant at just kind of... Did she sit you down and, and try and talk through these issues with you? Yeah she, yeah, she absolutely would now. I mean, I've just been lucky that over the years and actually doing more stuff like this and you know, always been quite honest about mental health. Um, even like doing I'm a Celeb, like made me realize, cause I'd never really, but I hadn't spoken about liposuction until after that, like, and I, and I realized that every so often I need to speak about this stuff publicly. Cause if I don't, which is a really weird thing, but for me, like I need to speak about it publicly cause then I force myself to like address issues. That's why, you know, the EP is important because not to like tangent about the EP, but, but it's like, for me, that's like the therapy that I've been living by for the past couple of years. And mental health is such a integral part of that. And the body dysmorphia is in there as well. Um, and it's just for me, I need these like benchmarks throughout my life to be like, okay, I'm going to speak about this. It's going to be difficult. I might feel like embarrassed, but 
which needs to be transparent because I find I find solace in like other people reaching out to me being like, oh, like I had um I've got Vitiligo, which like kind of came out of nowhere um, a couple of years ago on honeymoon, and I had like a few uh, people in the industry, like a few like news presenters and like a couple of chefs reach out and be like, I've got Vitiligo too, and I think there's that you really feel that sense of. It's a weird thing, but like a sense of belonging when someone that's got something similar to you reaches out it's and you're a like, sense of camaraderie. Exactly. And especially people that like I look up to and, and really like respect and they're like, oh, I've got vitiligo too, or I've struggled with my eating or that sort of stuff. I, I find that really, really beneficial. Or like the mental health stuff, like speaking to uh, Foxy from SAS, like I know him really well. And like we drove around Namibia together um, with Land Rover and we were speaking about mental health, like a lot, just driving through the desert and just us two in the car. And I'm like, Someone like that, who stereotypically me growing up, I, I always wanted to be like a soldier when I was, when I was like six. And I would just, you know, I had these like connotations of like bulletproof, like man. And like to so to speak about mental health with someone like Foxy, for me, like that's just like, that really helps me. And that's been the same with all of these issues I face. Yeah. Alongside this, the, the obsessed, obsessive behavior around food and body dysmorphia, yeah. did you, have any other sort of mental health issues in terms of anxiety or, or depression were they sort of tagged on to, onto the condition or i think i don't know i i definitely so like the, the ep uh really kind of solidified in my mind last year when i went through like a prolonged period of kind of feeling low and it's it's bizarre for me because because i've spoken about mental health a lot over the years I kind of think I tricked myself into thinking that I was pretty like robust and s sorted, especially post I'm a celeb where I kind of spoke about the uh, body dysmorphia stuff and um, addressed that and got to a much better place with that. And I don't know whether it's sort of like hangover from the pandemic or the uncertainty of like my future, you know, when, when the world went into lockdown, like two years worth of my like life kind of paused and obviously it was a lot worse for a lot of other people but it was someone that you know there's a there's a sense of a, a recurring theme of control in my life right with everything and like i love the fact knowing that i i've got my calendar book for like two years all of a sudden that was gone had a lot of time kind of being like okay what am i going to do and then like i i really i realized that i'd become a person that was very very up and very very down like all the time and it would be something as simple as like receiving a text about i don't know oh you've been offered to do a gig somewhere next week and i'd be like oh that's the worst news ever it's like you get paid loads of money you get to go to a really cool country amazing with the boys but i was like oh i don't like that because like what i thought was going to happen like my future had changed so when the pandemic happened it was just like everything cut and it's horrible and then i'd started like spiraling into this position of being like oh like i'm doomed my career could potentially be over and and it was quite it was quite testing um so i think depression's an interesting thing that i i definitely relate to um and those feelings of uncertainty paired with an increase in um by drinking a lot of alcohol and um and like cannabis consumption it was it was getting really pretty intense like daily stuff and, and this was during the pandemic yeah 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 i think yeah and i think in the early days of the pandemic when everyone was working from home and stuff i think it was like it started probably off as me playing on the playstation with my mates on the headsets it was really nice 
And then it would all of a sudden be like, oh, let's have a drink. And then I, before realizing it was like kind of every day, pretty much wanting to do that and, and smoking and stuff. And, and I think I just got to a point where it was, I sort of lost a sense of, uh, direction and I became quite unreachable to, to people close to me. Um, and that's why, unlike the EP is kind of my, like, so I've got a song dancing on the head of a needle, which is the first song I released. And that's like me looking back to that, that like real dark time and being like, I'm sorry for, for the person I was in that time. So I've got the body, dis <laughs> I feel like I'm just listing off like fucking things I've got here, but like body dysmorphia is one thing, but this sort of like relationship with my mental health and like depression is, is another thing. And I think now I'm in a, a much better place. Uh, I decided to, um, sort of seek help for, for the feeling low thing. And I think it was like one really like impactful thing that our bass player said to me actually was, cause he, he really just doesn't, doesn't like weed at all. And you know, he's really sort of like against it. And, um, and I think he said something like, why do you smoke weed? And I was like, oh, I love it because like, it just like makes time just like go fast and, and I can just like relax for the whole evening. And he's like, it's really sad that you're smoking weed because you want time to go faster. And like at the time I sort of laughed it off, but that's something that's really stayed with me because that is sad. Like um, I lost a couple of people in the pandemic, not from, not from COVID, but from other things like, and I just, the thought of me actively wanting to speed up time whilst loved ones around me have not had enough time is like, re was really sad. So, um, so cutting that out really helps. And I, so I, I, and I think my wife sort of, realized that I was having like prolonged periods of feeling low and not really wanting to like get up and do stuff. And again, it's really awkward to say this stuff because like my parents were so upset about hearing this sort of stuff, but it was just difficult and I sort of helped with it. And, um, and, uh, I think there was like a chemical imbalance and I think cutting the weed really helped. Like, I don't really do that anymore. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Cause at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about health and fitness and things yeah. like that and you didn't drink and stuff yeah no, no it's like the other way isn't it yeah. yeah and it's also interesting what you were saying about control and obviously there's elements of that around mm. your eating mm. and the fact that the pandemic came along and suddenly wiped out your your schedule so yeah. a bit you were almost cast adrift in many respects yeah i think i i think i need a sense of schedule and routine but again it's that like scale like in my head of you need enough to stay like motivated and sane but not too much to to take over your life and like walking that tightrope is something that i think i'll always struggle with but that's why cutting out weed is massive reducing my alcohol would be good and then like having a a moderate approach to like health and fitness is is good i think too much of anything for me is a is a bad thing and like work comes into that as well it's just about having like a yeah, this sense of like balance with, with all these things I do. Honestly, I so appreciate you you talking about this. It must be quite difficult going back to that going back to that time. I mean, it's hard. It's like it's one thing for me to be honest. I don't mind speaking about it, but again, it's like knowing how it affects it, like my wife and and my friends and and my parents. Like that's that's really tough. Like, and how, that how did it affect Sen? How how did they try and get through to you? And today, obviously, couldn't. But I think you know my my parents absolutely hate hated me smoking weed and i think my approach to that was i'm just going to be really like open and all. and again it's almost like it's the same with the food stuff i've sent them articles and i'm like oh look at look at what like weed does for anxiety oh it cured this person of cancer like definitely 
the, the, the main medical benefits of that, but for me, it was, there was no benefit for me smoking weed. It really messed me up. Like not, I didn't get anything good from it at all. So, but I, I tricked myself into thinking it was good. So just, 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 just yeah, exactly. Justify. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and my, I think my mum got to this point of just not really knowing how to deal with it. Cause at the end of that, I'm 30. So it's like, she can only do so much. <laughs> like I'm gonna, you know, I, I have means to do that stuff if I want to. Um, and I think, and you know, I said to my mum in October, which was sort of like a sort of semi breakdown moment where I stopped smoking altogether. I sort of said, so you were right about, about the weed and, and you know, it wasn't good for me. And I think for, that was quite hard for me to say, but I'd like to think that for her, that was like a, a big moment because you're like, she often is right about these sort of things. Uh, not everything, but, but, but a lot of things. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard. And, and, and I think the thing, the thing with, with weed in particular and, well, and alcohol as well is it's so, especially now for our age group, I feel like it's so deep rooted into so many social environments. Like every social thing I go to, there will both, I know there'll be like drugs and alcohol and we base a lot of our events around like having a drink and whatever. And like, I'm in no way like an alcoholic, like absolutely not. But I, I don't like the fact that certain substances appeal to me with regards to like lowering my guard and making me feel happier to like talk to people. So now I'm really trying to meet up with people without thinking about like, I used to be like, okay, it's two o'clock. Can I smoke weed today? I'm going to this event. Can, can I try and get some weed or can I, can I have a drink before going or whatever? Like now I'm really trying to just approach those things as like, I feel like the sense of, I think John Mayer said he's been sober for like nine years or something. He was saying that for, for some time after cutting out substances, you might feel like you're boring for, you know, but then like after a certain amount of time, when like real good things happen in your life, your whole happiness increases and it's not reliant upon drinking something or smoking something. So I'm really trying to find that sense of happiness and fulfillment outside of alcohol and weed. And like, I've definitely done it with the weed and like alcohol, I just need to work on a bit, but I'm getting there, I think. <laughs> um, you mentioned um, October and a really difficult time. Mm. Can you sort of expand on what, what happened? Uh, I've not really spoken about it, but I, I sort of embarrassed myself. So I went for a Sunday roast in queue actually um, with a, with, with our drummer and uh, two other people, two friends, one I hadn't seen in 10 years. Um, so we went to this pub and, and I, you know, I'd only had a couple of drinks, but I sort of, I was smoking and I, I kind of like, like passed out and, um, and like, you know, it can, it can happen, I guess, from time to time with people, you know, like, but it really caught me off guard. And I think it must go back to the control thing where it's like, you know, fainting <laughs> four o'clock on a Sunday, really nice, like quite warm October people sat outside having a roast and here's me getting dragged into a car by our unlike Tristan was like so good like really sorted me out sat with me for hours and um it was my wife she was out at like an event or something like a friend's birthday and she got a call at five o'clock from Tristan being like James is like crying and like just like all over the place and uh and it it was like a real moment I was like I'm nearly 30 I've just like fainted in front of loads of people eating Sunday roast with their family I look like an absolute mess. Like, what am I doing? And that was that was then, and and that kind of coincided with this period of depression. I, I think 
and it was it was kind of what I needed to to really kind of break that cycle and you know the fact I'd not seen one of the, those guys there for like 10 years and all of a sudden I was like on the floor I was like it's so not me <laughs> well I didn't think it was um so that that that's kind of what happened there and from there I sort of sought help with um like a like the, the depression side of things um the weed stopped didn't drink for like a month or so so yeah it was it, it was, was a moment then wasn't it it was it was like I like my you know my parents don't really know about about that but I think I needed it and and now that's why like with two of these songs on the EP they go back to that moment so I've got a song yeah Dance or Die which is the apology and then um, sorry Dancing on the Heaven Needle and then I've got a song Dance or Die which is the last song on the EP mm. which was like written right in that moment of feeling like some days I want to like I feel amazing I want to dance and another days I want to die I feel like rubbish so I'm in a weird way I'm like grateful for that period because like the EP is all about learning and I feel like I've done it, like, you get to a certain age and you just think the learning's kind of done and you're like, I kind of know how I tick and that's it. But but for me, that October and the year since then has been like a real period of self-reflection and learning for me. So I'm grateful for that, that weird thing um, because I know that I never want to be like that again. And that's not to say I won't like enjoy myself from time to time or never smoke weed again or whatever, but I really don't want that to be part of my character anymore. It's a very common thing to say, isn't it? In, t in many respects, they have to reach reach that point for them to decide to make yeah. changes. Yeah. I mean, you talked about um, speaking to someone about it. Mm. Um, was that th was that therapy? Was it a formal course of therapy? Like, I saw a therapist for uh, well before this actually, um, and it and it wasn't about the weed really, but I think it was about just me dealing with. I think dealing with when I felt like that sort of catastrophization thing I would do and like how that affected my relationship with like my wife or whatever. But it, I, I think the biggest thing for me was seeing a GP actually about, about depression and just being put on antidepressants, which I'd never been on before. And um, I think I had a bit of a, a bit of a, I don't know. I, I don't know how, how to say it, but I, I never saw that as an option. I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's for me. And that's why I keep on saying, I actually do think there's like a chemical imbalance for me because it's like night and day now. Like I don't have those those big thoughts anymore, um, those like spiraling things. And I think, you know, cutting the weeds one thing, but sometimes acknowledging that it's like, you, like I didn't feel like I had the tools within myself to, to sort of like get me through the next stage at that point. And speaking to the GP, obviously speaking to my wife continuously, speaking to the other Vamps boys, like I had a really good chat with, Brad, our singer in Cornwall, when we were um, working on a Christmas song last year, and I sort of like, I think my wife sort of nudged me to speak to him about it because I felt a bit awkward. It's just it's how I was feeling. And I think time and time again, every time I go through something, speaking to the people that are closest to me is so important. I know that's like a bit of a cliche thing to say, but just having a conversation really helps. And it also helps me process it myself as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a few factors that, that really help. It sounds like you've been through a real tough time. Yeah, but, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm happier for it though now. Like, yeah. it's good. Like, I never felt necessarily like, I don't know. It, it did feel pretty low, but I think now looking back, I'm. it was much worse than I thought it was at the time. Really? Because I've become numb to the whole, like, low feeling of just being like, I don't really care. But now looking back, I'm like, for God's sake. And especially, you know, like I said before, with some of my friends losing, like, really close, like, family members and stuff. Like, I view life 
so differently now is something that like again sounds cliche but a very precious thing and time is is the most valuable thing for me now so that's why i'm much happier that i've got this new perspective on on how i conduct myself and with my mental health and uh and and i'm conscious to not stray too far from where i am now mentally because i know that it's within me to like or it was definitely within me before to like spiral into darker places and obviously you've you've channeled this experience into your music yeah what was that process like because in many respects you're sort of you're going over what happened again in terms of your lyrics and things like that was it difficult to to put that to music to write those lyrics i think i made the conscious effort with this ep to like throw away any sense of like inspiration from other artists so i i approached it in the sense of like freedom where i was like i'm not going to try and recreate a certain sound or lyrically i'm not going to do this and that meant that there was no like walls or boundaries so i could just i could just write how i felt um you know that means that some of the songs are like five and a half minutes long but i don't really care like there's just that's just what's ended up happening um it came quite easy to me oddly um like dancing on the head of a needle was the last song i wrote for the ep and i think having written that i don't know five six months after that october period was good because it had been long enough for me to truly view the situation i was in as opposed to a song dance or die which the sort of tagline is this is day one because when i was writing it it really felt like first day of like the new chapter um but no, I, for some reason, I find it easy. I find it much easier to write songs than I would be sitting down talking to someone about it. Um, I don't really know why, but it just it just works quite well. And um, and I think it's like you know, I produced both of those songs. I just wrote and produced at home. There was no sense of going into a recording studio with like other people and being like, "This is what I've done. Like, let's make the song." I just did it on my own and and put it out, which is funny because it feels like in a way like no one's heard it but then obviously they have because it's been released but yeah i like that kind of sanctuary of my spare bedroom where i've just got like a little studio set up and i can just write the song and record it and put it out and that's why like being independent is is great and there's obviously like loads of challenges and hurdles um of being independent but for me i love the fact that i can write a song in exactly the way i want to i can produce it i can release it and uh and believe in it in a way that perhaps i'd struggle to through a major major label one of the songs is called blood and bones and yeah it's, it's an ode to your wife effectively isn't it yeah and obviously you touched upon how important she was in terms of getting you through some of those low moments is that what the song is, is sort of about it sort of alludes to so that song was was actually written before the october thing which is funny because i don't know how i could write a sweet song when i was feeling like absolute shit <laughs> but um i think like sometimes like i love doing the the more like emotional songs you know that about my my own vulnerabilities and stuff but sometimes i just like writing a, a love song and i think for me i i'm excited by the prospect of trying to write a love song in a way that perhaps people haven't heard before and i think lyrically that song for me was like really fun to do um and i like the fact that the title kind of makes people think it's going to be a horrible song and like i love that kind of like oxymoron feeling of it like um 
it's just it's it's a simple song but sometimes i think you need to have a simple like for me like having a simple song next to a song like dance or die i think is really important and yeah there's nothing too crazy about it the production's pretty chill but i think you know i've been married two years now and it's important for me to continuously say to her like you're you're kind of the anchor for me through this and you've, you've really helped me she's like she's everything she's like a therapist and like I've got a song um, uh, on my second EP and I sort of say that she's like an architect. Like she's like, she pulled down everything and then like re redesigned like a better version of me. And like, I really feel like like my wife is that for me. She's like a therapist, architect and everything in between. So um, yeah, it's important to say that you love your wife every so often. Obviously, it's, it's absolutely brilliant you opening up, opening up the list. For many people listening to this podcast, they would take so much comfort and and also advice from, from your from your words. And obviously you are also um have entered the political sphere as well. You <laughs> you appeared on a government select committee, didn't you? Yeah. Quite, quite recently. I keep forgetting about these things I do. But uh yes, it was um well, to speak about body dysmorphia really. Um What was that experience like? It was scary. It it was it was good but but scary. And I think I think if I remember correctly it was to try and encourage companies to declare whether pictures have been doctored that they'd use um, just for a sense of transparency. And I think, you know, if we're touching back on my um, impressionable years of seeing shopping bags with toned torsos on, you know, a lot of those images probably were not as realistic as they were trade to be. So, yeah, it was, it was quite scary. Like, you know, I've been very lucky to play big shows with the bamps and stuff but actually being uh being sat in a room speaking to jeremy hunt and people like that was uh was was quite scary and then i was thinking god the amount of tweets i've sent to slag off the tories and then i'm sat here in front <laughs> of jeremy hunt but no i think you know it's a, some an issue like that for me i think should be needs to try and take the politics out of it and just think you know this is important this would have really helped me when i was growing up so um yeah <laughs> it was good to do um, so fi finally, this is a question I ask um, everyone at the end. Um, what would you say to um, a young boy, um, a young adult, who is sort of struggling, who hasn't really got anywhere to turn to, um, who might be struggling with their with their with their body of how they look, or it could be just anxiety or or depression? What would you say to that person, having been through some of these things yourself? I think. For me, from again, like it does sound cliche, but communication is so important. I think, you know, that especially even last year when I was going through this weird period, I I felt this sense of isolation. And I think as soon as I started speaking to other people, and like, I'm not saying necessarily speak to your parents because that is scary for like, you know, 15 year old or whatever, that's hard. But you can share the, the weight of any burden through communication um i think for me as well like this whole notion of learning is so important and the way i've learned the most is by pushing myself to to try like new newer things and i don't mean like drugs i mean you know like doing things that are slightly outside of your comfort zone safe things that would have really helped me because i think i stayed within like my four walls for a long time and and um focused on you know the the gym and eating loads of highly processed protein foods and the reality is if i just like 
spoken to someone back then and been like, look, like, I don't really know. I know that I'm not happy. Why am I not happy with, with this? I think I would have got out of that kind of like spiral quite a bit quicker. So again, like it's just communication. That's, that's the thing I, I wish I'd done. Um, and also a sense of like knowing that you're enough, like everyone is different. Again, sounds very cliche, but everyone's very different and you're never going to be a certain. So if we're speaking about body dysmorphia, like I will never be what Terry Crews looks like. That's never going to happen. I'm that's never going to be me. And I think realizing that people have different body types and you need to learn to accept and embrace the the body type that you are because no amount of exercise or supplements or liposuction can can transform you into into exactly what you want to be it's about learning to appreciate what you have and um and striving to to love that that person on that note james it's been a pleasure thanks right cheers Thank you so much Thank you. You can find me on Twitter at Miratom. And if you like what you've heard, rate us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get new episodes automatically. Thanks for listening.